Hello, and uh, welcome to the Taglines podcast. I'm your host, Matilda Martin, and over the coming months, we're going to be talking about a range of topics relevant to foreign policy, international security, and development. We really hope that you'll join the debate by subscribing or visiting the Taglines hub at tagindev.com, where you can comment, share, or just generally continue the conversation. Today, we will be talking about the concept of smart cities. What are they really? What does a smart city mean? And how will they impact the people living in them? We're also hoping to be discussing what smart city means for developing countries in particular, and whether it will hinder or enhance equality of peoples and countries. So joining me today is Dominique Lazansky. She's a global cyber policy and international internet governance expert who advises several international bodies, including the UN, the OECD, the WTO, and ITU. She's also the owner and director of Last Press Label. Welcome, Dominique. Thank you. Also joining us is Ali Al-Shabazz. He is a professor at University of Gloucestershire in mobile and network security, and he has 25 years of experience in researching and teaching on cybersecurity and computing across the Middle East and the UK. Welcome, Ali. Thanks for having me. So I would really like to start with the the question of of definitions. You know, as far as I I know, there's no real definition of a smart city. But maybe going to you, Dominique, how, in your words, how would you define it? I think a smart city is uh, a city that uses the the innovation and the technology that we have and we will have in the future to uh, optimize, you know, healthy living, um, transportation, uh, water, energy, just about everything that we need to we need to have in a city. Okay, and and Ali, how would you define them in the context of sort of the least developed and low income countries? In development countries, actually, smart cities often focus on improving infrastructure and addressing uh, urban challenges such as traffic congestion, air pollution, and also access to basic services like water and electricity. Smart city solution in these countries may involve also use technology to improve public transportation, reduce waste, and enhance energy efficiency as well. That's really interesting. And... Um, for for us who are unfamiliar with this topic, what are there any cities at the moment who are considered to already be fully smart cities, Dominique? Um, I think, as far as I can think off the top of my head, not that I know of, there might have been a few that were built, and probably Ali knows more in the Middle East uh, that have focused on being smart, you know, from the beginning, from the origins of being built in the last, let's say, ten to twenty years. Uh, but what we're seeing, at least uh, across a lot of the older cities, is uh, an integration of the technology within the current infrastructure and, as Ali said, the improvement of infrastructure as well. Hmm. And, and Ali, in your view, is there, are there any sort of key obstacles for a city to go on this journey? Yes, the first obstacles are people, actually it's the actually yes it's the mentality and how can we change that it's not an easy task then the infrastructure and i did mention probably before about the type of connectivity if you don't mind i start to talk about technical side 
because at the end of the day, the structure of the small city is we have sensors uh, bring, uh, creating data, send it to something we call it gateway and send it to the cloud. As simple as that. Now, how which connectivity side we use? There is a, a big battle between two technologies now. The 5G's family, we call them MBOIT, one. And the other one, it's we call it the the uh, LP LP1 LP1, which is the low uh, low power wide area network, and the the most popular one they call themselves LoRaWAN. The good thing about LoRaWAN, it doesn't need a license; it just install the equipment and go ahead. While the MBOIT is part of the 5G, they need an infrastructure and license, and it costs them money. So. Part of uh, back to the uh, question is the obstacle is which technology, people, and the application. Why we are using that? And when it comes to people, because I'm glad you mentioned that, you know there is uh, there are the connected people. There is a vast number of unconnected people, and what is that really going to do in terms of? Uh, is it going to drive a further divide between people and between uh, high income, low income? both individuals and countries, or is it going to help us build equality? Dominique, what's your view? Well, I think the biggest challenge, even before that question, is getting connectivity globally. We have half of the world that is still considered to be offline, um, if you measure it by uh, metrics, according to the, to, to the UN. Um, and so once we try to figure out how we get connectivity to cities, then we can worry about um, ensuring that we have enough spectrum, as Ali said, for 5G and enough connectivity for other devices as well. I think the advantage of um, a lot of underdeveloped countries is that they can develop quite quickly and make a, a leap in technology. Um, so they can uh, use mobile technology right away. They can use new infrastructure right away. They can have a city that's almost fully connected right away. Whereas we have older infrastructure in a lot of cities. I, I'm thinking about London. Sometimes we have challenges um, with just getting a mobile signal <laughs> because there isn't, there aren't enough towers um, within the city for various other reasons, whether it has to do with buildings or, or people's private property, whatever it might be. So I think in, in the positive aspect, um, you know, underdeveloped uh, countries and cities can have a, a, you know, can really make that leap, first of all. Um, but again, going back to the very basics, we need to make sure that we connect as as many people as possible to begin with. Um, and then we can evolve into looking at, you know, how to connect the cities and how to make transportation better. It'll be slow, but it will it will definitely happen. And in terms of, again, coming back to if you can get people connected, that that's great. Then I guess the question comes around. The, like the types of connection, uh, privacy, and people's levels of trust within the system as a whole and, and those connections. Ali, can you help us understand that a bit more? Because I think the question and the balance between privacy, cybersecurity, and smart cities is quite delicate. Yes, uh, thank you for the question. The cybersecurity, it's a really important uh, factor. And... Uh, there are some uh, mistakes where some smart city is being developed without considering the security and security shouldn't come to the, to the end. It should be by design. 
this concept has to be security by design. And this is not an, a new concept. Engineers, engineering uh, uh, development research, they use this security by design. So for smart city, that we have to do that. The question now, do we have such a, a framework, an existing framework or for data protection, legislation, or for the public security? Do we have that? Unfortunately, no. I'm talking about the UK now. The current legislation is too unwieldy and slow to keep up the with the change of the technology sector. Uh, that's one. And with organization and government seeks to push boundaries, uh, failure become ever more pronounced when viewed against the boom of fintech, uh, other uh, technology to speed up. So we have an issue in terms of the legislation. And yes, we do have the GDPR. Uh, uh, and the data protection, but for the smart city in, in particular, uh, the security, it's different layers from the sensors, from the hardware side to the uh, different layers until reach to the applications. And that's also because there are multi-vendors and multi-stakeholders uh, uh, in this developing smart cities, the, the cybersecurity, it has to be from day one part of the design. And... Uh, what would you say the 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 most prominent threats are then towards towards individuals, their privacy, and towards this cybersecurity? I can say that's the most. It's the equipment which we have to know the vendors, and uh, we know these are actually verified and uh, uh, validate a secured from the security point of view. If we buy cheap equipment from Amazon, bring it here to my house, connect the data, well, the rest of the world, they can, they, they do know what I'm doing in my house. Uh, not to mention if it is Ministry of Defense or any a secu a secu uh, high secure. So in terms of the cost versus security, we shouldn't uh, do that. Security cannot uh, compromise with the cost. If it costs us 10 times, uh, we have to have it. It's not... It's not something we have to compromise. Yeah, I think one of the biggest issues is the human factor from a security perspective. So smart cities, as um, as we were just talking about, the more the more that cities are connected from everything from energy to to water to um, you know anything on, on throughout the city, there's a um, security threat right? There's a greater threat. The threat increases because you have a lot more surfaces that can be attacked, a lot more devices that can be attacked, um, a lot more networks that can be attacked. But I've always found in my experience that the biggest problem is somebody not changing their password or somebody giving their password to somebody else, even when it comes to a municipal um, waterworks or, you know, oh, it'll be fine. I'll just keep the password one, two, three, four, five or phishing or something along those lines that tends to be, um, you know, still a, a human factor involved in, in, you know, security. And that's just that, that goes across almost any device and any connectivity globally. But I think with smart cities in particular, particular, you're going to have so many more things connected and so much more data um, that you're going to have a higher risk of security. And does that include someone like me, for example? Does that include my devices? If I'm connected here in London, if I have smart meters and things in my house, does that mean that those same threats apply from coming from our devices? You know, I think our listeners would be interested in understanding what their role in this is. 
Yes, absolutely. So the more things that you have that you log into, that you have data coming from, um, that you want in your house, maybe even a smart doorknob or something along those lines, the greater the security threat. Now, the solution to that is a, is a couple of different things. Ali mentioned um, security by design. You need to make sure that you design things from day one with security in mind and privacy in mind and alongside the technology. The other thing that Ali also mentioned, I just want to highlight again because it's really important, is the idea of interoperability. So using different vendors, but making sure that they interconnect. That's where standards come into play. Um, and that's really, really key so that there's a diversity of products. There's a diversity of networks, which creates resilience for security. So having just one device that's the same from Amazon, maybe, <laughs> is not as secure as having a diversity of offerings that interoperate. Um, and, and there are a number of different organizations doing that. Uh, NIST in the US, which is the National Institute for Standards, um, they have a, a smart city framework that they, they have developed for best practices as well as for interoperability. And there's a number of organizations that are um, also developing those kinds of things. But as Ali also said, that tends to be the regulation um, is way behind <laughs> and the governments tends to be way behind when it comes to things like this. That's, yeah, that's really interesting. I, I think um, coming back uh, to the question of, again, of people, because we can, I can, for example, get connected, use the, a smart doorknob. Um, but <laughs> if I, if I don't trust the systems, if I don't trust ultimately the end, the end users of a smart city, most likely governments or this, or the states, what, how, what impact does that have? You know, I'm thinking now in particular in developing world where the level of trust of people in both private companies, as well as the, the state is very low. Does that create a real threat to the potential implementation of smarter cities, Ali? Uh, thank you. Yes, I would like just to echo uh, Dominique about the cyber human factor. This is a, a big topic and we are thinking to create a master degree in cyber human factor because really it is a concern now. It's not only about always the cyber attack comes from the technical side, it's the human side as well. So we have to educate people and we have to have an expert. And you are right, Matilda, if you have your smart device, yes, you are a person, uh, a target to, 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 or could be a victim, myself as well, but it depends. These people, they, they use all of us to our devices to get as much as they can information to for the zero day attack, they call it. We call it for the zero day attack. They collect information from everywhere to uh, to prepare for the zero day attack, which is the day we start the attack. But they need to prepare information. Any information. Can you just, sorry, yeah. what do you mean by zero day attack? What is that? Uh, attackers, uh, they, they have targets and they collect information about this target and the surrounding area, surrounding devices from any uh, surrounding and any human interact with these targets. And then the, once they prepare information, they uh, allow them or enable them to attack, they start the attack. And we call it zero day attack. So that's the, when they start the attack. But they there are a lot of work they have to do in advance before they, they, they begin the attack. 
and any one of us can any information comes from us as a human or our devices could help them to implement this zero attack, zero day attack um so i do want to come back to to my question though around the level of trust between people at private companies vendors as you've called them and the state um dominic what's your view on 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 that sort of potential lack of trust and how that impacts smart cities Yeah, so I think depending on the region and the country you're in, you have different levels of trust with your government and with private entities. Um, there are more market-based economies in this world and more state-based economies. I don't even know if you'd call it an economy, but sort of a state facilitation of uh, services. So I think depending on trust that you have within the government will depend on your trust within the government enabling different infrastructure projects um public partner part public public private partnerships which will be key for investment um because the governments will not only be the only one investing um as we've probably seen from a geopolitical point of view there's a there's a wide variety of trust when it comes to elections in the last few months quite frankly and that will definitely drive how people view um, new projects and connectivity uh, as well. That's that's really interesting because, you know, there is such a wide range of levels of trust and a wide range of, let's say, how states operate when it comes to things like cybersecurity, connectivity, privacy. So let's talk a little bit about the, the design of smart cities. Can you sort of drive the design to be equal or to drive, um, I guess, ownership from an individual point of view of, of your own choices around privacy, etc. Is there a way of designing them in this way? Or is is there a set way to design a smart city? Yeah. So again, going back to privacy by design and security by design, um, there's a way to build that in from uh from the beginning from the technology but i think the other the other side of it is the collection of data right so if you have a smart meter and you're able to you know give look at your meter reading adjust your your usage for example um provide a two-way dialogue with your company because you know the company the energy company is uh collecting information and probably doing some energy modification based on sort of the energy Uh, rationing kind of situation we have right now in Europe. Um, so that's one positive interaction. There's another sort of uh, design, which is very top down. Um, some governments, some countries really want to basically take all the data that they have and, and centrally control them. And that's very common as well. Um, and I think that you have different levels of privacy or perhaps a lack of privacy in that case and, and not a, a understanding of what what's happening to your data or how to manage your data. So if you have different offerings of different products, again, smart meters is a great example because in the UK, we have a couple of different um, options to choose from. Uh, and also if you choose products based on how you want to interact with it, how you want to moderate your payments, how you want, how much energy we want to use, how much you want to spend on energy. That's one way to ensure, um, you know, more trust and more uh, control over your personal information, as well as, you know, the, the environment that you live in. And um, Ali, do you, do you have any ideas how we might assess and measure initiatives uh, around smart cities and whether they are essentially improving or 
improving equality or whether they are working against it? Um, actually, we have to incentivize or encourage design that's safe, secure, environmentally friendly and user friendly and human, human rights compliant. That's important. Gathering uh, of a big data and associated, associ and associated with a privacy concern plus uh, ever-growing cybersecurity threats. That's actually creating an issue and affecting our, our lives rela uh, related to the smart and connected technology. Uh, in order to build this trust, we have to, as I mentioned, security by design, and we, we, we have to have some stages and uh, rather than just uh, do the infrastructure immediately because there is a human side of it. We do have a create 2.5 quintillion byte of data. That's 1 billion billion byte every day. And nowadays we have people, they call themselves data scientists or data engineers. They are dealing with the data, which helps to improve the system. And one of them is a smart cities. So uh, let me talk from the university perspective. We have to prepare people to live within the smart city and people who can also work within uh, skills such as data scientists, such as cybersecurity experts, such as cyber human factor experts, and AI, machine learning people. That's what we do at the university because in order to improve uh, these the, the smart cities initiatives and learn from the, uh, from the mistakes, we, we should have uh, the right skills. Uh, provide so we have 95% of our um, uh, graduates are employable they are really find a job while, while they are doing because there is a huge demand and some of them good for them they they earn more than me their head of department <laughs> and I'm proud and I'm proud of them um you know I think that's a really interesting point that you say you know there's a real even in the developed world there's a lack of these skills so let's again talk about the developing countries. There, there'll be an even greater lack uh, of, of skill and a uh, you know a lower baseline of the, where you start. Dominique, would you would you say that that's like it, you know there could be opportunity in that? What would you say in terms of again implementing smart cities in the developing world, noting that you know these skills are vital? Yes. Yeah, so I think as skills. The skills issue is across the globe, right? And, and in fact, I would even say before students come to university and Havali as a professor, you know, we need to start thinking about how we're changing curriculum uh, growing up, understanding computers and processing and, and also just how to be what your role in society is and how to be in society with technology, um, something I definitely didn't have uh, growing up. Um, and it's changed so quickly. But in terms of... Um, underdeveloped countries, I mean, one of the things that I've seen quite a lot is uh, countries being interested in capacity building. So bringing in not just outside people like me, but people within their own country who have these skills, entrepreneurs, um, uh, companies that are investing, companies that are actually taking on 
individuals as employees from those countries and building capacity through training, through understanding how things are done in other countries or even other universities or however it might be. So capacity building is is something that's huge um, within the UN, but also individual governments like the UK government, US, um, I know a ton of Middle East governments are um, are quite involved in basically going to different countries who are asking for it for for you know help and understanding and training and um, opportunities to to improve their um, their information. I mean, I would love to do. I would love somebody to train me on <laughs> on how to build a smart city. <laughs> but um, but I think that. What's to understand is, again, you have different countries have different levels of capacity or different expertise and um, being aware of sharing it and how that information around sharing it and how building out things um is 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 wonderful and and that's the opportunity um and i and i I have seen it over the last ten years slowly build up, especially with internet of things, which is a component to smart cities. Um, especially with the new networks. So with the emerging networks that Ali's talked about um, and and sort of how to build those out and how that's working as a baseline. And then of course, skills development is is a huge thing and education is a huge thing as well. So I guess they all need to go to university where Ali is. Um, We've come sort of to the end of our time. And uh, as we do so, I like to ask the people I talk to the question, Like if you had unlimited money and and power, and uh, what would be the one thing that you would invest in when it comes to smarter cities? Well, uh, I am biased. Uh, it's a human. It's developing the yep. human side. Uh, because I'm a university, just invest in human and they make it happen, uh, even if you have a limited uh, resources. Well, I think that's exactly what I was going to say, but not just from young students. I also think older generations as well, um, you know, people that are all ages, effectively just investment. And and of course, we've seen through the COVID crisis that we're able to connect things and, and get access to information and training online now. Um, and again, I just want to reiterate that a lot of countries don't have desktops and laptops. They go straight to their mobile phones. So in many ways, it's even easier um, to, to access all that information. And so, yeah, I would invest in the human factor as well as the information for teaching the human factor. I would like to thank you both so much for joining me today. I really feel like I've learned a lot about smarter cities. Um, and I think it feels like it is potentially something that will help bring equality and and support people across the world. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much. much. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Please, if you have any questions or want to continue the conversation, join us at the Taglines Hub at tagindev.com and we would love to hear from you. Thank you so much.